garden in my backyard, and everyone knows when you're preparing to plant, uh, the component that demands the most attention before planting is the soil. And so whether you're going to plant flowers or you're going to plant vegetables, the first thing you have to make sure is right is the soil. Because if you don't plant it in the right soil, it really doesn't matter if you give it the other things. It's really not going to grow. And so you spend a, a significant amount of time making sure, making sure your soil is right. And when we come to 1 John chapter 2, John is addressing his congregation. Remember, he's a much older man. He's probably in his 80s. He's in the last few years of his life. And, and now this is next generation of believers have come along, and he's writing back to them, trying to encourage them. And when John chapter 2, John is addressing growth in the congregation, how to grow in the right way. And for clarity purposes in this particular chapter, John outlines a series of three contrasts, or maybe you might think of them as three ways in which to measure whether you're growing in the right direction. Last week, John Gale talked about uh, chapter 2, 2 verses 11, keeping God's commands or not keeping his commands. This week, we're talking about loving God versus loving the world, and next week, it'll be Christ versus Antichrist, or the truth versus a lie. And so you can see what John is doing here. He's trying to set up these three contrasts. So if there's any kind of confusion in his congregation, any one of these pictures might help you know, hey, am I growing and am I going in the right direction in my relationship with the Lord? Now, it's critical to remind ourselves that these three contrasts in chapter 2 are not the soil. We've got to get that part straight. These things are helping you to show if you're growing in the right direction, gauges on your, your growth. But these things are not the soil. And so as we, as we look at one of these today, I want to make sure that we, we go back and we just stick our hand in the soil one more time. And the soil has already been prepared for us in John chapter 1 by John himself to remind his congregation, hey, before we take out any kind of measuring stick and whether you're growing in the right direction, I just want to make sure you all understand the soil in which we're growing out of. And that is the gospel. And you can see it very clearly, John chapter 1, verse 2. The first thing that John is affirming is that Eternal life, or the word of life as he puts it, has stepped out of eternity and into our time-bound world in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that God in the flesh appeared on this planet. And John's very clear about that. It's somebody you could see with your eyes. It's somebody that he could touch with his hands. So eternity in the person of Christ stepped into our time-bound world. In the person of Jesus. Now in verse 7, the blood of Jesus, it is the blood of Jesus that now cleanses us from all our sin. As John prayed, he became sin. He took on our sin and we took on his righteousness. And that that blood, his, his life, his death, his resurrection, has the power to cleanse you from any sin. 
It does not matter what you've done, what you've thought, whatever you thought. Nobody, you want nobody to know. Jesus knows it. And his blood, his life has the power to forgive you of that sin. Even if you cannot forgive yourself, he can forgive you. And in John chapter 2, verse 2, it tells us that he alone has the power to cleanse the whole world. So there's no other name in which men can be saved except for Jesus Christ. He is the only power that has the power to cleanse us of all our sins. Now verse 9, for those who confess our sins, God is faithful and just. He is faithful and just based on the life of Christ, not based on our lives. He's looking at Jesus and he's faithful and just and he will forgive And in John chapter 2, verse 1, Now, thanks be to God, we have an advocate. Jesus eternally pleads our case. So there'll never be a time that, that something comes back up and we might have to pay for it. He's eternally existing at the right hand of God the Father and He is our advocate for any sin in the past, any sin we may commit in the future. That's that's the good news. That's the gospel. And we've got to have our hands in that soil. And the reason the gospel is good news is because the gospel is God-centered and it's not man-centered. And that's why it's good news. I, I suspect no one here would think it would be good news if you came here today and I left you with a list of things that you had to make sure you did in order to receive the gospel. You would not think that's good news. You would go away burdened thinking, you know what, I may be able to keep these for an hour or a day or a week, but pretty soon I'm going to slip up. And so that's a man-centered gospel. That's not what we have in the Bible. John is wanting to make sure in in his letter we've got our hand in the soil first before we move out from that soil. Our salvation is based not on what we do, but on what he has done. It's not based on our performance. It's based on his performance. In fact, the the entire Bible is really meant to show you how God has been moving towards mankind. It is not a display of how mankind has been moving towards God because mankind has not been moving in that direction. So God is moving in that direction. And one of the reasons it's critical, I think, in our minds to have our hand in this soil is because we all have this terrible tendency to make performance the basis of our salvation. Almost everybody has that tendency at some level or another. It's very hard to keep these things in the in the right perspective and you just have this tendency to take your hand out of the soil and say, well, really, I think it's based on what I'm, do- I'm doing or what I have done. And so it's very easy and natural to make our starting point, Ephesians 4.1, which says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be humble, be gentle, be patient, be loving. It's very easy to make that our starting point, Ephesians 4.1, rather than making our starting point Ephesians 1.4, which says this, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. He 
chose us before we were humble and before we were patient and before we were kind. The only reason we can do those things, and the Apostle Paul understands that he puts the gospel in the very opening verses, so then when he gets your response to the gospel, your growth to the gospel, you're already in the soil. You've got your feet planted in the soil. It's the exact same thing John is doing. We have to understand the soil of chapter 1 before we start looking at our growth. John and Paul understand that if we start out with the things that we have to do, we're only going to breed a self-righteousness. We're not going to breed a God-righteousness. It's exactly what Jesus was talking about when he was looking at some folks in Luke 18. And he saw the Pharisees and how they were self-righteous. And he tells a parable about the tax collector. Remember the Pharisees up at the front of the church? He's saying, I'm so glad I'm not like these people. And the poor tax collector, he's just beating his breast saying, God, forgive me. And this is the opening line, Luke 18, 9. Jesus looks around and he said, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else. You can be sure today if you've missed the gospel by judging on whether you look down on people. If you're looking down, you've missed the gospel. The gospel is always looking up. It's looking up at God. It's trying to get up underneath people and trying to lift them up, whether they're your friends or whether they're your enemies. And so if you have a tendency to look down, you need to go back to the soil and say, God has picked you up out of a miry pit. He hasn't seen that you're good. He's good in and of himself. And so we've got to have our hand always in the gospel. It's also helpful because you can grow up in certain atmospheres like I did. I grew up in the South, and I went to relatively small churches as a kid. And by and large, I enjoyed the people there. But I can tell you it was very easy as a, as a young boy to get the impression that the gospel was based on what you were doing or what you weren't doing. I mean, I'm not saying because I don't remember everything that got said from the pulpit. I'm just saying the impression that I was getting was that, hey, you can't play cards. You can't chew gum. You can't smoke. If you're a man, you can't have long hair. If you're a woman, you can't wear pants. You can't go to the theater. I can't tell you how many times I remember, you know, if God comes back, would you want to be found in a theater? And so it's very easy to get the impression, and I don't want anyone here to leave with the impression that the list, that the performance is really the gospel. Somebody said, you know, the, the little phrase that they, came, they had heard was, uh, don't smoke, don't chew, don't date girls who do. And so that was the idea that they got that it just so easily, your performance slips into the soil and you think, oh gosh, that's, what, that's how I get salvation. Now, I also don't want you, and I think John's going to help us understand, we can't just say it doesn't matter what you do. Paul is talk, talks against that. 
And John is talking against that because he's saying, you got your feet in the soil. We understand the gospel. Now, if you really have your feet in the soil, then you're going to be growing in a certain direction. And one of those measures, one of those gauges is, are you obedient to the commandments? That's a measure of your growth. It's not the gospel, but it is at you. You are being able to revisit and say, do I have my feet in the right soil? And, the, and you look around and say, am I obedient to the commands? And then if, you, if you're not, then you might want to go back and say, am I really in the right soil? Or if I'm in the right soil, what's wrong that I'm not growing in a Godward direction? And so we're coming to this uh, this morning, the second of the three contrasts. And that is the love of God, which you see in verse 12 through 14. A lot of conversation about what John is talking about, whether it's little children and fathers and young men as actual people or this sort of stages in your growth with God. Everybody starts out as a little child and then you grow up and then you become a father, you become mature. So we'll talk just a bit about verse 14 at the end, but I want to spend most of our time just looking at 15 and 16. And specifically this verse, do not love the world or the things in the world. It's important that we get this right because uh, an improper understanding here has led many to a lot of confusion. If you have any studies in church history, you know there's always seems to be a group of people who are withdrawing from the world. They live what's called ascetic lifestyles and that means they just don't take any pleasures and they try to have uh, as little connection to the material world as they can and they they tend to withdraw in the early church you go live in a cave and you've you've heard these kinds of stories they're they're just saying oh the this world is somehow bad this physical material interactive world and i'm trying to withdraw from it as much as i can and you would come to a verse like this and and you would Sort of make your case. And I think that uh, it's also confusing because you read this and it seems painfully clear. Do not love the world. And this is by the Apostle John who also wrote John 3.16. Which says what? God so loved the world. <laughs> and so it's easy to get confused. I mean it seems like the same writer is saying on one hand. God loved the world, and if God loved the world, he must want his people to love the world. But then on the other hand, he comes back a little bit later and says, well, don't, make sure you don't love the world. And so there can be a, quite a bit of confusion here. And really, I think it's easy to see that the word world can have more than one meaning. It's not some deep insight. It's just that when you, we're thinking about the word world in the Bible, it doesn't always have the same connotation. The one reference is to the physical dimension, the, the planet, mankind. You see this in Genesis. When God made things, what did he say after he made it? It's good. I, I like this stuff. This is good stuff. And we can like the stuff as well. So when he's referring to just mankind or any kind of creation, that's a good thing. That part of the world you can love. You're supposed to take care of. You're supposed to walk alongside of. You're supposed to join in with in those ways. But then there's a reference to an ethical dimension of the world, and that's a world system. 
that's any way that you take a created thing and make it the creator. Any kind of world system that puts you or anything other than God at the center of your world, that that you're the most important thing or whatever else out in the world is the most important thing, the, the system that says that God is either not there or not necessary or not at the center, any system like that is that what we're not supposed to love. And if you just, just turn for a moment, look at chapter 5, the very last verse. It's very interesting, and I think we'll have a sermon on this at the very end. John's sort of talking all the way to the very end, chapter 5, verse 20. And then, I don't know if it's just a little addendum, but look what he says. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the last verse. Isn't that amazing? Because he understands this principle that we're just so apt to take the created things, make them the center of our lives, and then that becomes our God and we're servicing that. And that's the world that John is trying to say. We cannot be loving the world in that way. Now, when you read these verses, chapter now back to 15 and 16, I think I, I get this feeling that John is trying to help his congregation be aware of the seduction of the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, this, this seducing that happens in the life of a congregation. Now, he could have been more worried about his congregation in terms of being put to death because in the early church, a lot of Christians were put to death. But I get, I get the feeling here, he understands that's a real threat, but he's more concerned that there'd be a seduction. And I think that is the main concern for the church today, especially the church in America. And especially when I, I'm thinking of the young people here. It's just so easy to get seduced. I mean, it's difficult if somebody's got a sword to your throat to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. I'm not trying to take that away. But likely, no one in this crowd is going to face that. But everyone in this crowd is going to face seduction. Just the, the slow drift, the, the moving away from God at the center and beginning to put your hands around the things of the world. Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor in the 1800s, wrote this. I believe that one reason why the church at this moment has so little influence over this world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Now, Charles Spurgeon said that 150 years ago. How, how much more true might that be today? And so John comes in as this excellent leader, great pastor, and, and he provides these three categories of discernment, which we want to look at. He's saying, well, how do I know if I'm being seduced? How do I know if I'm loving the world? So he gives us these three categories to measure ourselves by, or these three gauges. And I want you to think of them as gauges. And you're going to look at your, your gauge on your life tonight or this morning where where are you on the gauges that he gives us the desires of the flesh is the first gauge the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions 
I actually like the reading from the NIV a little bit better. The first one is the cravings of sinful man. The second, the lust of the eyes. And the third gauge, the boasting of what he has and does. Now, I want you to notice before we look at these, John's brilliance with this list of three things. What is John drawing our attention to with this list? The cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, the boasting of what he has and does. What is John telling his congregation is really at the heart of the problem? It's not the culture. He's not picking out things in the first century and saying, hey, here are the top three things in the culture. He's not pointing outward. What is he pointing? He's pointing to the condition of people's hearts. He's saying, hey, the real problem lies on the inside. And so that's why this book preaches today. And we're not just talking about battles that, were, that happened 2,000 years ago. These are the same battles that you and I have. And so John understands something very important, and that is that people are not coming to and they're not born into cultures as innocent and with passive hearts. I want to say that again. John understands something very important that we need to understand. Nobody is born into a culture. Nobody comes into an environment with some innocent, passive heart. Nobody does that. Whatever your age may be, everybody comes in with an active heart. And that active heart is looking for things that are going to satisfy the appetites of the flesh. Looking for things that are going to satisfy the appetites of my eyes. And looking for things that are going to satisfy my ego. No matter what culture you're born into, you have those things in your life and you're hungering after those things. You have an active heart after those things. And thanks be to God for the gospel that he's given us. He's taken out that heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. But we're still waging war against that and we're going to look at these gauges to see where we are as John comes down and does some surgery on our hearts. The desires of the flesh. Now, I know we've talked about this word a couple of other times. In the Greek, it's epithemia. It's two words. Epithemia. And that means over-desire. John isn't talking about evil desires here, that you want to murder somebody. That would be an evil desire. John's saying, hey, the desires of the flesh are over-desire. It's taking good things and making them God things. It is not bad to have the desire to eat. That is a good desire. But an over-desire to eat is called gluttony. It is not a bad desire to want to sleep, except if, like, the sermon's going on. That's a bad desire. That is an evil desire. Resist Satan at that moment. It is not a bad desire to want to sleep, but an over-desire for that is laziness. It is not a bad desire to want to have sex, 
But an over-desire of that is immorality. And so what John is saying here is there are all kinds of great and godly gifts. And what's our problem? We take them and we make them God. We've got to have this one thing or we just can't go on. And John's sort of taking the scalpel and saying that's an over-desire. That's moving something from the created to the creator spot. And that's one gauge that we need to have a monitor on. John Calvin says this, The evil in our desires does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. Some of us may be fighting against evil desires. All of us are fighting against over-desires. Taking a good thing and making it a God thing. Second gauge, the desire, desires of your eyes. You, you do understand that your eyes have an appetite. I mean, I hope you understand that. That's why we have the phrase, feast your eyes on this. Because your eyes have an appetite. Every advertiser knows that your eyes have an appetite. And they're hoping that your eyes will feast on whatever they put in front, knowing that the eyes are the gateway to your actions. One definition that I read this week was about the desire of the eyes was this. The tendency to be captivated by the outward show of things without inquiring into their real value. The tendency, now just put a monitor on your heart. Look at your gauge. The tendency to be captivated by the outward show of things without inquiring into their real values. As soon as I read this definition, I thought of Proverbs 6.25. And Proverbs 6.25 and 26 is a warning for men against sexual immorality. And it says this, Do not lust in your heart after her beauty, or let her captivate you with her eyes. For the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread. See, see the wise man in the Proverbs understands that you, your eyes have an appetite. And they can be captivated by things that they see. But the real value, even though your eyes and your mind may be telling you something else, what's the real value of capitalizing on that immoral desire? What's the real value? You're reduced to a loaf of bread. We have seen it this week and really all the way through our lives. Men standing up in front of a camera who get reduced to a loaf of bread. And it doesn't matter if you're a governor, and it doesn't matter if you're a president. This same temptation is a real temptation that you get captured by the show and you really are not calculating the value behind the show that you get reduced to a loaf of bread. And I tell this to my son all the time. The strongest man in the world got captivated by the show and got reduced to a loaf of bread. 
Samson. The wisest man in the world got captivated by the show and got reduced to a loaf of bread. Solomon. The most godly man in the Bible got captivated by the show and got reduced to a loaf of bread. David. So it does not matter if you're here and you're godly. It does not matter here if you're here and you're wise. It does not matter if you're here and you're strong. It has brought down all these people. And whether you're battling against sexual immorality or you're battling against materialism, it's the show. And we need to look and monitor ourselves and say, what's the value behind this thing? Is it really just a loaf of bread? Or is it something eternal that's worth investing our time in? Finally, pride and possessions or boasting of what he has and does. These were some phrases that were in some of the books I read this week. Hunting for honors. Hunting for honors. Exaggerating what you have in order to impress other people. Boasting of your ancestry or acquaintances. When I worked for a professional sports team, the the Atlanta Braves, one of the things that just drove me crazy was how much of the conversation revolved around who you knew. Who did you see today? Who did you get to have a chance to to eat lunch with in sort of this executive suite? Was, Was Henry, was Hank Aaron there? Was Chief Nakahoma there this time. And all these people, when you were down in the locker room, did you get a chance to shake hands with or talk with? And then you get into the uh, sports writer's place and who you knew. And it was all just a carousel of name dropping. And I was just so glad to get out of that and thought, I'm going to get into ministry and we're, not, we're just going to get off that carousel. I was sorely mistaken. It is so easy to get on that spiritual carousel of boasting. Oh, Pastor Paul, I'm just reading this deep devotional by this medieval mystic, and it's really, and I think, are are you really moved by that, or you want me to be moved by it? I listened to, I heard, I know, I got the signature of, I was was underneath so-and-so's leadership. And it's just a carousel of name dropping. Who you know. What you've read. That you're serving. You wouldn't believe I've just worked every day this week. And as soon as I got off work, I've just gone and worked for church. And and it's just a carousel of boasting. I'm just using another avenue to impress you. So so we need to put a monitor on these gauges. And we need to ask ourselves, if we're really planted in the right soil, are we growing in the right direction? Has a good desire for you become a God desire? Are you captivated by the outward show? Or do your eyes just feast on things without calculating the real value? Behind those things. Do you just drop in things into a conversation? 
just try to impress somebody that you're with. What you've read, what you've done, who you know. I mean, it's not bad to bring it up. It's just if you're bringing it up so that you hope somebody really would be impressed with you. And you have to be very transparent on this with your heart. John is clear in these last verses. None of these things are from the Father. All of these investments in the world pass away. Just thinking this week of Farrah Fawcett and Michael Jackson, and I don't know anything about the state of their soul, but just the way the world treated them. And it's gone. And that's going to be your name one day in the obituary. And we're going to have to be asking ourselves today, are we investing in things that really have a value in one million years from now? Not 20 years from now. Peggy Noonan, a political writer, said it perfectly in a Forbes magazine article. I think we have lost the old knowledge that happiness is overrated. Then in a way, life is overrated. Our ancestors believed in two worlds and understand, understood this to be the solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, short one. We are the first generation that actually expected to find happiness here on earth. And our search for it has actually caused such unhappiness. The reason... If you do not believe in another higher world, if you believe that this is your only chance at happiness, then you're not disappointed when the world does not give you a measure of its riches. You're in despair. Just as a way to conclude, verse 14. How do you have the strength to not love the world and love God? I mean, we've We've articulated the love of the world, and that's maybe something that we need real clarity on. And I think John gives us some help in verse 14. How is it that I can move away from these things that are capturing my attention and move in a Godward direction? And he talks about these young men. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. Okay, so when I read that, I'm leaning forward. I'm saying, he has notified somebody, he's noticed somebody in his congregation and said, hey, you are one of the strong ones. And I want to say, well, how did that person get to be a strong person? Because I want to emulate that if that's possible. And look what he says. You are strong and the word of God abides in you. And because of that, you have overcome the evil one. How does a young man keep his way pure, according to the psalmist? You should know this verse. By living according, what? To his word. That's, that's how young men, whether you're young in your faith or you're actually a young man, how is it that you work yourself into a Godward direction? You, you abide in the word. of. There are other spiritual disciplines, but you abide in the word of God. Paul says to Timothy, train yourself to be godly. Nobody drifts into godliness. You don't just drift and go, wow, I just turned out to be a super godly person. I don't know how it happened. Sure didn't work at it. 
When you see some muscle-bound person, you don't go, they just drifted there. I mean, when you look at me, those kinds of things happen. How How does that young man get into that kind of shape? I don't know. But he works at it. You train yourself for these things. And when you see somebody who's excellent in something, you know they did not drift there. They train themselves to get to that point. And so we can be very lazy Christians and say, you know, I'm just in the gate and I'm going to go to heaven. And, you know, that's sort of it. And, and John and Paul are saying, train yourself. Because if you don't, you might be seduced. And it might be that you never had your feet in the right soil. Let's pray together. Lord, you you have really helped us through the Apostle John to see these gauges on our the dashboard of our life. And I am praying, Holy Spirit, that you would help us see what we could not see. We are the best believers of lies to ourselves about ourselves. We always give ourselves a break. We always look better to ourselves than is realistic. And so I pray that John, like a great surgeon, has used his scalpel to come in and really identify problems in our hearts that we have over-desired, that, that we have been captured by the show, that we are constantly trying to impress other people by what we have or what we've done. And so do your divine work, I pray, in all of our hearts here.